Exodus 20. We'll be reading our scripture for today, um, verses 12 through 17. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land with the, which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. So how is your relationship with God? How was it this past week? As I ask that question, there is some standard or metric by which you're trying to gauge your answer. So how do you think about your relationship with God? Maybe you thought, well, I was this consistent to read my Bible this week. Therefore, I've had a good week in my relationship with God. Maybe you think about how frequent your prayers have been. Perhaps it's how you did fighting a sin this week. Or perhaps it's even just how you feel. Do you feel as though you are close to the Lord. And I want to let the record show that I believe that each of those things are crucially important to having a vibrant, spirit-filled, healthy relationship with God. But I do wonder, is the only metric and standard that we should consider private habits? inner feelings, or should there be another standard or metric? Should we also not quickly consider how we did it loving the people around us? And so I wonder, as you think of your relationship with the Lord, I wonder how quickly, how readily you run to thinking, how well did I do at loving those around me. Uh, let me say it another way. I wholeheartedly believe in the extraordinary effect of the ordinary means of grace. Reading God's word, praying, singing, fighting sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. I wholeheartedly believe that the Lord does great work through those ordinary means but I'm not convinced that the sole factor of consideration when we're thinking of how healthy our relationship with the Lord is ought to be individual disciplines. In fact, when the Bible speaks of having a vibrant, spirit-filled walk with the Lord and relationship with Him, it often accentuates how the holiness before God is lived out with others. 
scholar Alec Maltier says, there, should, there is no such thing as a concern for God that ignores our, our relationships with other people. There's no such thing as us having a concern for God that all the while ignores our relationships with other people. And that reality is not just a New Testament idea. In fact, we come face to face with this reality in our passage today. In the second table of the Ten Commandments. The second table of the Ten Words. The Ten Commandments are described as being comprised really of two tables. The first table, commands one through four, deal with our relationship with God. Have no gods before me. No created image of God. Not emptying God's name of its weight and worth in all that we say and do. And working hard and resting well. Those all inform our relationships with God. This morning, we'll cover the second table, which is aimed at loving others. We'll have to, because of time constraints, we'll have to do this in a, a more overview way instead of going detailed attention into each commandment. In fact, we could say that our passage makes clear the absolute necessity of worshiping God by loving others. And in fact, that's what we've called this sermon. Our obedience to the outward and visible realities of these last six commandments really do reveal how serious we take the first four. Let me say that. Your obedience to these last six commandments reveal how serious you take and believe in the first four. Two, two weeks ago, we mentioned this, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 33. As Moses is speaking and the people of God are about to go into the promised land, you shall walk in all the way which your Lord God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you will possess. And so this morning, we turn our attention to the the, the remaining commandments, so that it will be well with us. The Ten Commandments are not meant to be burdensome. The Ten Commandments are meant to both reflect rightly the holiness of God, all the while maximizing our happiness in Him. And so the Lord desires to shape us and his people in a way that is specific to how we ought to respond to him. Through this law, these Ten Commandments, we better know God because this law reveals the character of this God. And so as we're as we walk through these last six commandments, it would be helpful for us not merely to focus on all of our attention on the commandment, but to think, what does this reveal about the God who desires to draw near and to be with us? And I think if we can see the character of God captured in the commandment, hearts that long to please God and hearts that are stirred up to love the Lord 
we will desire these commandments because we want to rightly honor our God. And so these commands are God's gracious self-disclosure to us, his people. And so let's pray that we would see the worthiness of our God in these commandments made clear through this sermon and that we would glorify him and enjoy him by keeping his commandments. So let's pray. Our holy God, we come to you and we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you have a clear purpose for your commandments and your law. We come face to face with your law and we realize that your law doesn't lead us to have an affectionate reverence of you. But we're afraid of you because we're guilty. And praise be to God when these commandments and your law drive us to Jesus. We find life-giving, liberty-fueling freedom. And so I pray that you would use the sermon this morning to accomplish your purposes. Allow us to be exposed and searched by your spirit and make us a people who delight in you and seek to enjoy you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've not yet opened your Bibles, I would invite you to open them to Exodus chapter 20. It will be helpful to understand uh, the sermon is not merely my commentary on what I think you need to hear. The sermon this morning is seeking to be faithful to what God has revealed. Exodus chapter 20, second book, Exodus 20, the numbers at the right and the left top corners of the, the pages, those are the chapter numbers, and then you'll find smaller numbers under those larger chapter numbers, those are the verses we will begin in verse 12. And so we'll consider the last six commandments this morning, and then we'll observe how the people respond to this incredible moment. And so let's begin with commandment number five. Honor your father and mother. Honor your father and mother. We see this in verse 12. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. This commandment really does serve as a transition from the first table of the law, our relationship with God, to the next table, our relationship with others, and the transition, the bridge, so to speak, is how ought we relate, not merely to everyone, but to, to those closest to us. How ought we relate to our family? This is addressing the most basic unit of society, the family. And so why start here? Why in this transition to think about how we treat others and what our love for the Lord says and calls us to do to others, why start with the family? I believe in, because in God's good design, he gives us from the beginning of our existence a relationship whereby we learn what it means to be under the authority of another. And is that not what these commandments are doing? Calling and outlining for his people what it looks like to live under the authority of the one who has all authority, God himself. And if there's an earthly relationship that helps us understand this, it's the relationship between parent and child. 
What does it mean to be under the authority of another? That's what children are to learn, to listen to their parents, to honor their parents, to do the things that they wouldn't do apart from the loving care of their parents. It's in this relationship between parent and child, child and parent, that we learn how to live with others. And the word there, honor, honor your father and mother. It means to treat with a weightiness or a reverence. John Calvin has written much on the Ten Commandments, and he says that this honoring requires three things. It requires a reverence, an obedience, and a gratitude. A reverence, an obedience, and a gratitude. And so the call then to honor your father and mother is not to say that your father and mother are perfect. It's not even saying, I am honoring you because you're worthy of this all the time. It's not that your parents in and of themselves may be worthy. It's because of the relationship. It's because of God's good design for the home. To honor is to recognize the God-designed significance of that authority in your life. And so a person who's unconcerned about honoring their parents has more than merely a parental issue. The one who's unconcerned about not honoring their parents really has a God issue. And so children, it is in the best interest for you to honor your parents. Children, I hope you heard that. And your parents didn't even ask me to say that. And in the New Testament, Paul picks this up in Ephesians chapter 6. And he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And so what's interesting is that all of us have parents. This call to honor our parents doesn't end at 18. It doesn't end whenever you stormed out of the house. No, this is a lifelong commitment. And sure, honoring looks different as we age, but the command is still there. And and if you are a child in the house and you are a believing, you profess to be a believing Christian, then a primary way for you to express your love for God is to love and to respect your parents, to honor your parents. And I realize what you may be thinking, because I thought the same thing. About the age of 12, I began to think that my parents knew nothing, that everything they said was wrong. And lo and behold, fast forward a few years, I had children... I got older and I realized, huh, everything they said was right. It was me. Parents, you have the opportunity to grow to be friends with your children. But the relationship that you have doesn't center on friendship at the outset. It centers on authority. And so parents, you are to help your children 
to know what it's like to come into a world where there is a moral authority and there is a moral structure of order. And just in case you're ready to get in the car and wield Ephesians 6.1 to your children, let me just remind you of Ephesians 6.4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Parents, you are not kings and queens who get to unleash your rule over your little subjects. And so just practically, parents, don't be too harsh. Don't be too perfectionistic. Don't be lacking in grace and lacking in encouragement. Don't be a harsh disciplinarian. Don't be too uninvolved in your children's lives. The family is the place in God's good design, where we are meant to learn about love and protection, respect and obedience. And my heart is heavy today. Is even I, I, pre, I prep this week and I'm praying this week and I just go, and yet the reality of so many in this church is that home and the parental relationships that they had were not marked by love and protection, respect and obedience. And so I want you to know that it's not God's good design that's the issue. It's the corruption of sin that has broken God's good design. And by grace and through faith, there is a way for us, even with horrendous upbringings, for us to know something of his goodness. And praise be to God, he brings restoration to broken things. And so if you feel like your upbringing was just a massive carnage of brokenness, I want you to know that there is a promise that in Christ all things that were wrong will be made right. If your parents have ever asked you to honor them, but that requires you to dishonor God, let's just be clear. We don't uphold the second table of the commandments all the while breaking the first. And so this command has a promise that's attached to it that says that it may be well with you, that you may prolong your days in the land which God has promised. That's not saying that if you... Obey and honor your parents, you'll live to be two, three hundred, four hundred years old. It's promising an ability to enjoy the full blessings that God has in store for you to in the place that He will bring you. And so, how are you doing at honoring your parents? There's freedom in living this way. And that brings us to the sixth commandment do not murder. Do not murder. The next three commands. Uh, commandments have no commentary. And in the Hebrew, each of these commandments are just two words. Not murder, not adultery, not steal. Not murder. 
There are eight different words that could have been used for killing another person. But this word, the one that the Spirit inspired Moses to use, means to put to death improperly for selfish reasons or without authorization. Other words are used for warfare. Other words are used for the government's use of the sword. This word, this is about selfish taking of life. At the heart of this commandment really is the sanctity of human life. The preciousness, the dignity of all human life. And it's rooted in creation. And it's interesting, all of these Ten Commandments, we can, we can trace them back to somehow being rooted into God's good design given at creation. Even the last commandment of honoring your parents, we see that basic family unit established in Genesis chapter 2. And this roots... Roots, this commandment is rooted into the, the creation reality that all human life is created in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And so again, any attack on a human life, because it's bearing and reflecting the image of God, is an attack on God himself. I think it's interesting when Noah comes out of the ark after, after God's great judgment through the flood, God says in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. There's something that's completely different about being made in the image of God that gives every human dignity and worth and there's a sanctity to that life. And the people who belong to God then ought to be people who protect and seek to preserve and uphold that God-given image that's stamped into every life. God's people are committed to this. And they're committed to this at every stage. They're not shaped by the winds of culture that say, uh, until you're born, that's no life. No, from conception. The people of God are committed to this. And they're not shaped by the winds of culture that say, well, with certain disabilities, you're really of no value. No, God's people reject that. There is, there is in, inherent value. There is inestimable worth upon every human life. And our culture will say, well, once you get to a certain age, then you become good for not much. And so is it not better for us all to begin to just speed up the process? And we say no, because we are not the givers of life. And so we protect and uphold and preserve all human life from womb to tomb. And so perhaps you're thinking, I got one. Right? We're going through the Ten Commandments. We get to commandment number six. And finally, I can say, I haven't murdered anybody. Maybe there's hope for me. I, I have conversations with people that aren't Christians who tell me when I'm talking to them about their need for a Savior, they, they almost want to stop me and say, whoa, 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 listen, listen. I'm not that bad. Like, I understand what you're saying, that there's a problem with sin, but I'm not one of those because I have never murdered 
anyone. And that's what I hear. How bad can I be? But in the Bible, it's not just the action, but the heart and the motivation behind the action that God is concerned with. In fact, when Jesus comes on the scene in Matthew chapter 5, this is what we read. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, quoting this commandment. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Wait, what? And we began to see that the law, the law is searching. It searches not just our actions, but our attitudes. Not just our behaviors, but our beliefs. Not just what people can see, but what they can't see. Not just the fruit, but the root. In fact, 1 John 3.15 says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so who among us has never been angered at another? Yeah. I don't think you want to run to the Ten Commandments to look for validation that you are okay. It will cut your legs out from underneath you every time. Our anger is serious. And for us who are in Christ, if you're a Christian this morning, you have the Holy Spirit, which means you can choose life with his help. And you can have righteous, good anger and not be consumed by sinful anger. Because the fruit of murder finds its root in a heart of anger. And so how are you doing? How are you doing at upholding the sanctity of human life, of not murdering and not being angered at those who bear the image of our God? How are you doing at upholding that in your actions as well as in your attitudes? That leads us to the seventh commandment. Do not commit adultery, verse 14. In the Hebrew, not adultery. Our relationship with God affects our sexuality and our sexual relationships with one another. Again, we could go back and we can see this is rooted in creation, in the gift of sexuality, in the gift of marriage. And this commandment is not meant to restrict our freedoms. This commandment is given to ensure that we find the satisfaction of God's good gift that he's given in the gifts of marriage and in sexuality. And so do not commit adultery is the prohibition of not having sex outside of the bonds of marriage. And so the question then would be, well, why is this included? Like, 
this is revealing the character of God, and, and we're trying. Why is this included in the Ten Commandments? Because just as people are made in the image of God, Commandment 6, so too the gifts of marriage and sexuality. When God gives marriage to humans, marriage was not merely meant to be an earthly relationship that was really sweet. No, God gave marriage to humans in order to reflect truth about him. And so our fidelity in marriage says something about our belief about him. Paul makes this clear in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, when he says, Wives, be and do this, and husbands, be and do this, beginning in verse 22. And you get down to verse 32, Paul says, This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. And so marriage is sacred because it's a reflection of Christ and his church. God is faithful to his people. Christ is faithful to his church. And thus, spouses are to be faithful to one another. And sex is sacred because it's a sign of that covenant. And so God's people are to be different than the world around them, than the culture around them, than the practices of those around them. They were coming out of Egypt, which was littered with worship to a lot of gods, and they were going into the land of Canaan, which would be littered with worship to a lot of gods, and most of those having some elements of sexuality. It may seem old-fashioned and outdated to honor this commandment, but just consider our current moment. I wonder if we just stop and ask ourselves, are we the better for not obeying this commandment? One pastor asked, is society healthier for not having obeyed commandment number seven? Do people really feel liberated in their sexual activity or has it confused things? Has it incited abuse? Has it led to objectifying women? Let's be a people who honor God's design for marriage and for sexuality. And maybe you think, okay, I realize you just sort of cut my legs out from under me in commandment six, but commandment seven, I'm not committed to adultery. So maybe I can leave here feeling okay about myself. Well, remember, Jesus isn't merely after right behavior, but the heart attitude. Adultery is the fruit. Lust is the root. And if we keep reading Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus brings this law and makes it far more soul-searching than we considered, this is what we find in verses 27 and 28. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So clearly, the social ramifications are different at this level. But the guilt before God is not. Now, 
And I just think, think about their context in Matthew chapter 5. Think about our context today and just the, the pervasive exposure and gross nature of pornography has created such a slippery slope for many. And hearts that are fine to indulge at pornography at that level really are one small decision away from adultery, physically. And so if you're struggling here, I just want to encourage you, talk to somebody. There, ought, there has to be a place in the church where people that are struggling, feeling ensnared by sin, where they come to others in the church to expose their sin, to bring it into the light in order to find gospel healing, gospel restoration. And so if you, you're struggling in this area, I just want to invite you, talk to others. And if someone talks to you about a struggle, this is not the scarlet letter sin. But we have to be insistent upon the truth, but we have to know how to wield that truth with a lot of grace and to meet people where they're at. Praise be to God, we can't out the grace of God. It reaches farther. And teens, do not go down this road. Flee sexual immorality. Talk to your parents. And you just said, what? Like your parents want to talk with you about the places that you're struggling. And parents, if they talk to you, don't go nuclear on them. You want them to talk with you. And if you say, I just don't feel like I can talk to my parents, talk to one of the student ministry volunteers. We can't budge on truth, but we have to be marked by grace. And so how are you doing at honoring God and his design for marriage and for sexuality? It leads us to the eighth commandment. Do not steal. Do not steal. In the Hebrew, not steal. Verse 15. To steal is to, say, is to take something that is not yours. And here's the thing. We're rooting all of this back into the character of God. God owns everything. He has never had to take something that was not his. And so then that's our practice. Because we want to reflect the image of the God to whom we are accountable to and by whom we have been created. We're to respect the ways in which God has portioned out his resources. God's heart for people is to be protective from the selfish action of others. And really what's at the heart of this command is a sense of God's justice. I mean, think about it. What's at the root of theft? Theft is the fruit. What's at the root of that? The root is lacking a love for God and lacking a trust in God. I will steal if I don't care about God 
and if I don't trust God. If I'm discontent with what I've been given and I don't think that God will take care of me, I will take matters into my own hands. Literally, stealing. Trusting God breeds love for others. And then when I do trust God and I can say, God, I believe you will provide, then I'm free not just to not steal. The opposite of steal, uh, stealing is not not stealing. The opposite of stealing is giving. And so once I trust God and once I have a love for God, I'm able to give for the glory of God. Maybe you think, okay, hey, I'm starting to be pretty good. I, I, I'm not a robber. Like, I don't go around stealing things. Allow this commandment to be searching. What about time? What about music and movies and subscription services? You still there? Taking things that are not yours. Uh, to be the people of God, we want to be different than the world around us. And so are you honoring God by being respectful of what he has given to others? And are you honoring God by being content with what he's given you? Leads us to the ninth commandment. Do not bear false witness, verse 16. Do not bear false witness. This would have been very important to the people then because their justice system was built on witnesses. And so anytime witnesses were brought in and those witnesses lied, then the whole judicial system imploded. It just collapsed on itself. Justice could never be upheld if people lied. And so the direct application here would be don't tell false things about others in court. Again, we're rooting this in the character of God. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie. And so if God isn't one that lies, then having been made in his image, having been rescued and called his people, then we too should reflect his character. When we tell the truth, even when it's costly, we testify that our God is committed to telling the truth. Just contrast this with what the New Testament says about Satan. He's the father of lies. He's the deceiver. Human relationships do not work in the context of lies. And not speaking out, like withholding truth that you know in certain circumstances uh, would fall under uh, this umbrella. Truthfulness in our speech is reiterated in the New Testament as the norm for all of God's people. And so how are you doing at guarding the reputation of others with your speech? And how are you doing at guarding the reputation of others and what you hear others say? 
Covenant Life Church, if you hear others slandering or gossiping as a covenant member of this church, it's your responsibility to shut that down for the glory of God. Have others go to the one that they're not representing fairly or they're speaking offhandedly about. Fight to guard the unity of God's people and the truthfulness of God's name. And so how are you doing with this commandment? You, are you prone to just giving into lies? It leads us to the last commandment. Commandment 10, do not covet. Do not covet, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything but that belongs to your neighbor. And this commandment is different because it's measured internally with the heart. So all of these other commandments have been focused really on the behavior. This commandment gets behind the curtain and goes to the motive of the heart. Coveting is a sin of the heart. You covet when you want what you do not have. And so if stealing is not being respectful of what God has given to others, coveting is being envious of what he's given to others. Much like the first command, have no other gods before me, this is the sin that's behind the other sins. If you were to follow and trace out, why is it that the person steals? Well, because they covet. Again, you were to think, why is it that a person uh, takes the Lord's name in vain? Why is it that they don't rest? Because they have other gods. There's something else that's functionally serving as their God. Why do you commit adultery? Because you're not content with what God has given you or others. And the focus here in verse 17 is not on the coveting. It's on neighbor. He goes through, do not covet your neighbor's house or wife or servant or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to him. And so God is seeking to to prohibit self-centeredness that causes you to crave a possession that your neighbor has at the expense of honoring and loving your neighbor. When you so bad want something that someone else has been given, that you can't love them well, then you know you're coveting. God desires for his people to be content. He doesn't desire his people to envision their gain at their neighbor's loss. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, Paul would say that this kind of coveting is idolatry. Paul connects this commandment with the breach of the first commandment. And so just a good diagnostic for you to consider? How well do you do at rejoicing with those who rejoice? Because having a heart that's gripped by covetousness 
will keep you from being able to rejoice with those who rejoice. In fact, you may find yourself in some sick, twisted way rejoicing at those who weep. And maybe even weeping with those that are rejoicing. And so how are you doing it? Be content with God's provision for you. Your coveting says more about your thoughts of God than it does about your thoughts of what you desire. And so for the application lovers among us, there are 10. 10 points of application, also called the 10 commandments. God's people are shown how they are to love him and how they are to love one another in every aspect of their life, in their homes, in their parenting, in their marriage, in protecting another's marriage, in respecting possessions and being generous and defending the reputation and names of others and being content with everything that God has given us according to the measure of his grace. And so the question then is, how in the world does, do, will God's people respond? Like, what is it that they do after getting the Ten Commandments? Well, verses 18 through 21 capture this. In verses 18 through 21, if I could just sum it up in one word, it captures a fear that God's people have. And then verses 22 through 26 is the Lord speaking to say, and this is the worship that you were to have. How ought we respond? How did the people then respond? They respond with fear. And God then says that fear must lead you to worship. Verse 18 brings us to this sensory immersive experience of God's glory. The whole mountain is trembling with smoke. God has rescued them. God has saved them. God has guided them. God has provided for them. And he's led them here so that they might know him. He didn't bring them out of Egypt to kill them. He brought them out of Egypt so that they would know him. And Deuteronomy 5.25 lets us know that they are most afraid because they have heard God speak that they are going to die. If you go back to Exodus chapter 19 and the people are going, we want to hear God speak. And then you get to Exodus 20 and God has spoken and people are going, we might die if he ever speaks again. Twice in 18 through 20, there's this comment about how they were standing at a distance there was something about God speaking and something about his holiness, something about this law revealed to them just how holy God was and revealed to them just how sinful they were. And I really believe that's two types of fears that we see that run all throughout the Bible. There's a fear that flees God's presence and there's a fear that seeks God's presence. And maybe understanding those two fears helps provide clarity on what seems to be a pretty confusing verse in verse 20, where Moses says to the people, do not be afraid for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. And so Moses says, hey, God says, don't fear so that you will fear. And you're going, wait, what? And again, understanding the two types of fears that we see literally since sin entered into the world, Adam and Eve in fear, 
they run away from the presence of God. And yet we find angels over and over in the scriptures running towards, flying towards the presence of God, marked with reverent fear. Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. And Moses says, hey, don't fear because God's not come to kill you. He's actually testing you. And this fear, this training ground of testing is meant to instill a fear that would keep them from sin. It is good that they have this right fear of God because this right fear of God is leading them. It's protecting them from sinning. And so which fear do you have? Do you have a fear that flees the presence of God? Do you have a fear that seeks the presence of God? And I love how the people say, listen, we don't want to speak with God anymore. Moses, you speak with him for us. I mean, they are, they are saying we need someone to stand between that holy God and us. And so the question that I ask as I'm reading this is, how in the world can Moses stand before that holy God? Because Moses is sinful. And I love what Moses will say in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Moses will pray this and tell the people this. Moses will say, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you and from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. And this is according to all that you asked of the Lord in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, let me not again hear the voice of the Lord our God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. Verse 18, I will raise up a prophet from among your, their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. Moses, even Moses on this mountain was looking forward to a better mediator. One who God would raise up, who would be able to do what Moses really couldn't do. Who would be able to stand perfectly and we wait, and, and all throughout the Bible, we're just waiting. God, where is this perfect mediator? And by his grace, we get to the New Testament, and we see that God, in great love and mercy, sends his son, Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Jesus stands between God and man, and he does it uniquely. He's truly and fully man, and he's truly and fully God. And in Jesus, we see the perfect revelation of God, the one who comes and hushes the law's loud thunder and quenches Mount Sinai's flame. And so Jesus, Jesus is the only way an unholy people could ever stand before a holy God. That's why the law has been given. The law has been given to expose God's holiness, to make clear God's holiness, and to expose man's sinfulness. The law is not how we're made right, but it shows us how we need to be made right. And God, in just the perfect time, in the fullness of time, would send forth his son. And Jesus would come and Jesus would do that right thing. He would perfectly obey God the Father. And he would get to the end of his life and he would be crushed 
as one who was riddled and, and whose life was filled with sin and iniquity. And he would stand bearing the wrath of God, taking on judgment, absorbing God's rightful hatred and fury against his sin. And on the third day after his, after life leaving his body, being dead, he would rise triumphantly. He would do the impossible. And the Bible says that that God who does the impossible and perfectly obeying the Father and dying, absorbing the wrath of God and rising triumphantly from the dead, that God who does that impossible work also is in the business of doing the impossible work of changing dead hearts and bringing them to life. And so if you're here this morning and you've not trusted in the finished work of Jesus as your only hope to ever stand before a God who is holy and who requires perfection, you will not get there by trying to keep the law. In fact, the Bible over and over says that the work of Jesus puts an end to that law. Romans 10.4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. Jesus Christ is the point of the law. He's the goal of the law. He's the fulfiller of the law. And he's the end of the law for all Christians. Better news you will not find this morning. And so if you're not a Christian, I would just plead with you. I long for you to be made right with the God who you will give an account to. And so turn from your sin. Lay down your efforts and trust in the finished work of Jesus. He will forgive you. He will save you. And so hearing this, will you flee or will you seek God? And we don't have time to mine out what the Lord says in terms of how fear leads to worship in verses 22 through 26. But I will just say this. I would invite you to come back next week because verses, or chapters 21 through 23 have been called what, uh, what a lot of people, it's come to be called the book of the covenant. And so what does it look like to take those 10 commandments and begin to just practically live them out in day-to-day -day interactions? That's Exodus chapters 21 through 23. And verses 22 through, 22 through 26 really is this prologue to that. And so I would just invite you to come back, consider the prologue, and then just hear. Hear about what it looks like to live out the Ten Commandments how these commandments really do inform every aspect of our lives. And at the end of the day, we stand in need of worshiping Him rightly in the right way. And for all who have trusted, for all who have turned from their sin, for all who have believed on the work of Jesus as the only hope for them ever to stand before God accepted, 
then there's a, there's a meal that the Lord has instituted for us to not forget his benefits. And here at Covenant Life, we believe that the order of this meal in the lives of Christians matter. In the same way, you don't obey the Ten Commandments in order to be made right with God, so too you don't take the Lord's Supper in order to earn points with God. In fact, God has been clear that this is a meal that's been designated and set aside for his people. 